The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, we are really excited to, to jump into Exodus this morning. And if you've got a Bible, you can open to Exodus 1. If you've got an app, you can open to Exodus 1. If you're watching from home, get your Bible or app and open up with us. And let's look in the Scripture together. Before we do, a couple of things just to say. One is a big thank you, and another is a great opportunity to meet someone. So last week, Ryan Murphy, our missions pastor, had the Whitefields up. They were headed to Tanzania and needed $1,200 of monthly support. And by God's grace, within a day, uh, your generosity had them fully funded. And so we want to praise God for that. And uh, we're grateful. They are ready to launch. They had two weeks, and now they get to go and share the gospel with uh, Muslim tribes of eastern Tanzania. And today we've got another TBC goer with us. Natalie Rocco is right here. Natalie, would you stand up so we can say hey to Natalie? Let's welcome her. (laughs) Natalie has been serving in Guatemala for many, many years, and she has got a table back by the missions map with information about her ministry. Would love for you to connect with Natalie if you have an opportunity to do that. And then I just want to tell you this week, as men's conference ends, our speaker next year is my favorite all-time speaker uh, at a TBC men's conference. He was here several years ago. His name is Tom Joyce. Tom Joyce was in the Pentagon when 9-11 happened. He led a squadron of Navy fighter pilots and uh, led many of those guys to Christ. And then he also has pastored Emanuel Baptist Church just south of Washington, D.C. for about 20 plus years. So that's January 24th to 26th next year. You can put it in your iCal right now and be ready to go. Well, we're in Exodus, and Exodus has kind of been a big deal for a lot of nations, but it's been a big deal in American history. It's a 3,500-year-old book that still speaks to us today. When John Adams was writing before America existed, he wrote of those who came over from England as kind of a people of Exodus. During the Civil War, American Jews wrote of Abraham Lincoln, who was freeing slaves, that he was like a new Moses. In the 1950s, in 1956, 18 years before I was born, but a lot of you were there to see it in the theater. There was a movie about the Ten Commandments, Cecil B. DeMille's movie, Charlton Heston, was Moses. Martin Luther King Jr., the great civil rights leader, would use an Exodus motif in his messages often, including his last one, where he talked about going to the mountaintop. Even last year, a Wall Street Journal article wrote about Exodus as an American story. But Exodus... At its center is a story about God. Yes, it's a a story with many supporting casts, but ultimately it's about Him as deliverer and Savior, and it points us forward to Jesus Christ. And I would like to ask, why should we read Exodus, and how should we read Exodus? And I would say, before I really get into the reasons, if there was a book that told you about a baby that was floating down the Nile River in a basket of reeds, and he survived, you might want to read that book. If there was a book about God's self-revelation to Israel as the great I Am, 
is the Lord who is slow to anger and abounding in love. You might want to read that book. If there was a book about plagues in Egypt or God passing over judgment on a nation through the blood of a lamb or a people crossing the Red Sea, you might want to read that book. If there was a book that gave us the law of God, you might want to read that book. And all of those books are Exodus. See, we we read it, why, for four reasons, and how, in at least four ways. We read Exodus to know God better. We read it to know God better. He's the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We study the Scripture because we want to know God there. It's where He reveals Himself, ultimately through Jesus Christ. We don't just study the Scripture to know God, but we study the Scripture to have confidence in God and His Word. This is the Word of God. And we trust that it has authority over us, so we don't have authority over it. We read it to understand who we are as the redeemed people of God. See, some people would look at Exodus and go, Exodus is a book about people who followed God's law and then he redeemed them. But that is not correct. Exodus is a book about a people God redeemed and then he gave them the law. He said, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests, in fact, a holy nation, my treasured possession in Exodus 19. And then in Exodus 20, he gave them the law. Then we do, of course, read it to understand what sort of lives God's people should live. In fact, Paul, when he was writing to the church in Corinth, reminded them of the Exodus people. 1 Corinthians 10 begins this way, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea, and they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. They didn't even understand the Messiah they were looking for who would come. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. So Exodus tells us what it looks like when the redeemed people of God want to follow God. Well, how do we study the book? I think first we study it with help from the Holy Spirit, because the same Holy Spirit that inspired the authors to write this book has to awaken our hearts, our minds, our eyes to see what God wants us to see, to accept what He wants us to accept, and to obey what He wants us to obey. So we read it with help from the Holy Spirit, and then we read it as history. We're going to read about real events that happen to real people. And you might hear many say who name the name of Jesus or who don't name the name of Jesus. There's no way that's history. But it is. That's how it's presented to us. And to argue with this being history is not to argue with me. It's not to argue with Temple Bible Church. It's to argue with Jesus and his apostles who believed this was history. When Jesus rose from the dead, he walked with the brothers on the road to Emmaus, and he told them, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, what must happen to the Christ? 
Jesus said, if you believe Moses, you would believe me. In the account of Lazarus, he said, if they don't believe Moses, they won't believe someone who rose from the dead. My words don't condemn you, he said. Moses condemns you. We read it as history. But then we don't just read it as history. We also read it as literature. It's part of one book. When Exodus starts and it names Joseph and his brothers the writer is assuming that the reader has read Genesis. It's one book made up of 66 smaller books. It is the Word of God, and it tells us the story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration that is accomplished through Jesus Christ. And then we read it as theology. We are here to study God. And the study of God, apart from the Bible, is futile. And if we study the Bible in a way that doesn't help us to know and marvel at God. That's futile too. So let's read Exodus. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 people. Joseph was already there. His brothers had sold him into slavery, and through prison he rose to be second in command. Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with a heavy burden. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. The more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Israel is in a difficult situation. Even though it sounds like they've done just what God commanded Adam and Eve to do, just what he commanded Noah and his sons to do, just what he promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob would happen. See, God said that these people are growing and increasing and multiplying exceedingly strong. They were filling the land. Well, God said to Abram, who was an old man without any children, go outside and look at the stars. If you can count them, so shall your offspring be. And Abram, who was incredibly flawed, believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And God was given, God gave to Abraham a child of promise named Isaac. And Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, a miracle that they would even get together. They had 
two sons, Jacob and Esau, and their son Jacob, he was a trickster. He had two wives. His life was profoundly broken. But God uses profoundly broken people to do amazing things so that he gets the glory and we get the grace. And through Jacob, through his sons, the people of Israel end up in Egypt and they are being fruitful and they're multiplying. Well, when God made man and woman in his image, here's what he told them. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And so Israel is doing just what they've been commanded to do. And as Israel grows in number, Pharaoh grows in fear. And you just kind of see the cycle happen. And so he starts to oppress them and he oppresses them as slaves. And Israel grows in number and Pharaoh grows in fear. So he makes it more difficult. And Israel grows in number and Pharaoh grows in fear. It's almost like Pharaoh thinks he is sovereign and he can shut down what God wants to do. And it's not going to happen. So Israel then begins to fall under the reign of this tyrant and a veiled genocide. And the chapter is going to end with an unveiled attempt at genocide. There arose this king who did not know Joseph. He had forgotten. He had forgotten the goodness of God to the people of Egypt through Joseph, who planned when there was famine. This king didn't know. And when Israel hears this, as they're hearing this story recounted over and over and over, first orally and then written down, what they are hearing is covenant language. See, God told Abram that his people would sojourn in a foreign land, and it was going to get very difficult for them. Right after he took Abram out and showed him the stars in the sky and said, look at the sand on the seashore. If you can number those grains, that's how many offspring you're going to have. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And there they will be afflicted for 400 years, and I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And Israel's there, and they're like, hey, God, we have got the part of being sojourners and being enslaved. But we need help. We need a deliverer. Things are not going well. Pharaoh forgot Joseph. What he knew is there were a lot of foreigners in his country, and it made him nervous. What if they try to take over? What if they join our enemies? Well, who is this Pharaoh? And when did this Pharaoh exist? It seems like the writer of Exodus doesn't want us to know who Pharaoh is because he just doesn't tell us. But I think the reason is that who Pharaoh is is not the point. Who he represents is. And Pharaoh's identity is not central to this story. He's going to be washed away with judgment from God because he thinks he is God. Well, when is this happening? Well, people argue about when this happened. Some say that it happened in the 1400s B.C., late 15th century B.C., some say 13th century, 1200 B.C. That's the later dating. For a lot of reasons in the Old Testament that I will not dive into, I think it's the earlier dating. 
A lot of godly people disagree with me. This is a non-essential issue. I have no problem with them being wrong about this, okay? So Israel, though, is enslaved in an Egyptian dynasty. And Pharaoh is just a title. It means great house. It used to refer to the king's house. It eventually became the title of this serpent king. Well, why would we call him a, a serpent king? Well, the reason is this. This is the headdress of Pharaoh's. It kind of looks like a cobra, and then it has a serpent on it. And the serpent represents Wajit, who was the snake goddess of Egypt, who was known to protect kings. Now, this story sounds kind of familiar. There's a serpent king who wants to ruin God's plans and kill God's people. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. And we hear it in Genesis 3, and then we hear it here again in Exodus 1. And then when David is fighting Goliath, it says that Goliath had armor like the scales of a serpent. And we could go on over and over and over to references like this in the Old Testament. John the Baptist, when he's speaking to the religious leaders, he said, you guys are like a brood of vipers. You're just a bunch of serpent kings. You're shutting down what God wants to do. And that's what Pharaoh represents. Now, we're going to kind of jump back and forth this morning from the 1400s B.C. to the 21st century because we we got to stop and just ask the question, are we at all like Pharaoh. Pharaoh was prideful and Pharaoh was forgetful. He didn't remember the moments God worked in his life and we need to remember the, God, the moments God worked in our lives. He, he never set up an Ebenezer. Ebenezers were these stacks of stones that the people of Israel would place to remember the goodness of God in their lives. But if you go to the British Museum today and you walk through the area devoted to ancient Egypt, you will see statues from the time Moses was alive and you will see lots of statues of Pharaoh and nothing about the faithfulness of the God of Israel to the people of Egypt through the life of Joseph. Pharaoh was prideful and Pharaoh was forgetful. We've got to remember the moments that God has worked in our life because when we forget, we reshape him into a God who's small and we reshape ourselves into the one who's sovereign and good. I'll tell you a story I wish I couldn't tell you. There was a couple that used to be at TBC many, many years ago. And they started a business. And as they started their business, they spoke about the faithfulness of God but somewhere along the way, the man began to forget. And one day, he came home from work, and his wife was sitting, smiling and in tears. He said, why are you crying? She said, I'm just so happy because God has been so good to us in blessing this business. And the husband says, God, I worked my tail off to make this business a success. I built this. He forgot. And pride came before a fall. Don't forget the goodness of God in your life. You, you don't want to meet Pharaoh's end. See, 
There were Pharaohs who knew Joseph, and this Pharaoh didn't, and he got afraid. Israel grew, and he said, they're too many, and they're too mighty. Too many and too mighty. He's living out of fear, not out of gratefulness. And and then verse 10 says, Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. He's worried about Israel growing a mighty military, which is why he's going to try to kill all the little boys, and he's going to traffic all the little girls into Egyptian society. That's his plan. He says in verse 11, Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. That word afflict is like to wear out like a piece of cloth. It's, it's the picture of jeans that you wear so much that you just wear the knees out of, or a kid who's got that blanket that he loves, and he just rubs on that blanket and rubs on that blanket till he rubs a hole in it. Pharaoh's saying, we're just going to wear them out with work. They won't have time to be fruitful and multiply. But they do. It's like God wants to accomplish something in these people that even Pharaoh the most mighty military leader of the time just can't stop. And so Israel responds with more growth. Look at verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. It doesn't say Israel was doing anything to attack or try to take over, but the Egyptians were afraid. Verse 13, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and they made their lives bitter with hard work, service, and mortar and brick, and all kinds of work in the field, and in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now, we're going to dive deeper into this in Exodus chapter 5, but I want to pause and say there are people who who ask sometimes, does the Bible condone slavery? Now, they never use Exodus 1 to ask that question. But the answer is no. This is ruthless and it's evil. Well, Chase, where do you get that the Bible doesn't condone slavery? Well, I, I would say a lot of places, but really I would just start in Genesis 1. God created them in his own image, male and female. He created them. Does it sound like they were created to be enslaved? The answer is no. Slavery is a result of the fall. It's a result of wickedness. It's a result of tyranny. That was true in Egypt when Pharaoh was enslaving the Israelites. It's been true whenever it's happened throughout history. It was true in our own history. It's true today when there, there are places in the world where really wealthy people bring folks from other countries over and they take their passports away and they enslave them and it's wicked. We are made in the image of God. Well, Israel needs a deliverer and it's becoming more and more apparent as the first chapter of Exodus goes on. Now, the need for a deliverer is not unique. Throughout human history, over and over and over, people have needed a deliverer. And if, if we're honest, it's kind of uncomfortable, but right here and right now, we need a deliverer today. Our culture's broken. 
And listen, it's uncomfortable to talk about it. Nobody wants to say it out loud, but there's a really obvious and clear deliverer for America. Some people don't like him. Some people don't like what he says. Some people don't like his personality. Some people don't like how he says the things he says. They're really hard to process. His name is Jesus Christ. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's risen from the dead. He's the deliverer that Israel is looking forward to even as Exodus happens. And he is the only deliverer for all of humanity. Israel needs a deliverer. God is going to deliver them from slavery to Egypt. And it's a foreshadowing of the deliverance we need from slavery to sin and death. So we've got to read because the story gets worse before it gets better. They're not just slaves. Verse 15, the king of Egypt said to Hebrew midwives, one of them was named Shipra and the other was Pua. When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded. They let the male children live. You may have read of the story of the Ten Boom family who protected Jews from Nazis at risk of their own lives. One of them survived, Corey Ten Boom, and she told the story of their fear of the Lord. They let the Hebrew children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they're vigorous and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. But you shall let every daughter live. Well, Pharaoh responds with oppression. But God's people just keep growing and there are these two midwives. Their names are Shipra and Pua. Shipra, actually in the Septuagint, it's Sephora. She was the midwife of beauty products. <laughs> uh, so Sephora, that store is named after her because the name Sephora means beautiful one. The name Pua means splendid one. And that's what these ladies are. And don't let it be lost on us that the Bible written in the ancient world that would not lift up and acknowledge the work of women. In Exodus, it starts with these midwives who are heroes in the story. And then Pharaoh's daughter is going to rescue Moses. And then Moses' mother is going to raise him. And we should not miss the heroism of these women who fear the Lord. Pharaoh says, when you see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. Well, I know what you're asking. What is a birth stool? So what they would do, ladies, is they would set up two stones, and these ladies would put their elbows on them. 
and give birth outside. Now you think, my gosh, that's crazy. But there are TBC missionaries that when, when they went to the tribe that they were serving just a few years ago, that's the birthing practice that they were doing, essentially. And in addition to bringing the gospel to the tribe, they brought health that changed infant mortality rates. So these Hebrew women are vigorous and they're giving birth and the midwives fear the Lord. They will not kill the boys. We see in ancient Egypt and we see today an absolute disregard for the lives of babies. These babies are born. We see it in our culture in both the lives of the born and the unborn. And in a culture of death, we need to be light. And I'll just tell you two really encouraging things that I saw that blessed my heart as it relates to the life of children. Last week, my wife and I were invited to an open house at Hope Pregnancy Center. They'd expanded their temple office thanks to a lot of gifts and a lot of prayer and actually thanks to construction work that, that a guy from here did a lot of. And we walked in and we were just blown away at the ultrasound machine, the encouragement and love and the gospel that they share with ladies in crisis pregnancy and men who are with them and how they care for children who are unborn and then care for moms and children after they're born. And for ladies who choose abortion and are wrecked with guilt and grief, they have aftercare for them up to a year later. They see 100 ladies plus every year come to know Jesus Christ. And I was just so encouraged that we get to partner with Hope Pregnancy. Well, the next day, Laura and I were training to be volunteers for Night to Shine, which is a, a prom for individuals with special needs. We have 315 volunteers, praise God. And as we're there... I was thinking about this text, and I was talking with Ashley, who leads our children's ministry, about this, and she said that 87% of parents who find out that they are expecting a child with Down syndrome, they report that the first thing the doctor says to them is terminate this pregnancy. About individuals who are made in the image of God and who bring joy and blessing to every community that they're in. See, the, the truth is, is that little Hebrew boys and little Hebrew girls, and for that matter, little Egyptian boys and little Egyptian girls, are made in the image of God. And these midwives fear the Lord more than Pharaoh, and so they get called in to the palace. And Pharaoh says, why have you done this and let the male children live? I don't know if we can imagine what this was like. I read one commentator who said it would be like ladies who are in the lowest part of society walking into the White House. And I thought, no way. Like, this is not a democracy. It's a tyranny. And this man holds the power of life and death, and he can kill them. They've got no rights. And they defy his command because they fear the Lord. It's the sort of bravery that has rarely been seen 
and the world. And we should stop and consider because we live in fearful times. We get afraid of all kinds of things and sometimes we get paralyzed by our fear. And it might be fear of something really kind of small compared to this. It might be that we need to forgive someone who said something that hurt our feelings. It might be we're afraid to share the gospel with someone at work when there will really be almost zero consequence for us other than disagreement. These ladies fear the Lord. They trust in the Lord. They're not afraid of Pharaoh, and they do what they believe God is leading them to do. I heard a story of a guy named Kevin. And Kevin and his family were going to do missions in an area of Central Asia where it might be a little bit dangerous. And his mom, who was a believer, pulled him aside. And she said, hey, my dad and I love you, but have you thought about what this might do to your family? And that, that question resonates with me, not because I've ever gone to do missions in Central Asia, but my wife and I have made decisions and loving family members have said, hey, have you thought about what this is going to do to your family? And we had to trust what we believe God was leading us to do. Well, that's what Kevin did, and he said to his mom, Mom, I'm more afraid of disobeying God than I am of what this might do to my family. And he went, and, and he and his wife and family were on the field ministering to Muslims and ministering to Buddhists over a period of many years, and his, his parents became champions of their missionary efforts. And they were there until they came home to care for his parents and ailing health. It, we should mention, just as an aside, what it did to his kids. The oldest boy there is now the dean of a seminary. The, the daughter, she's married to a military chaplain, and they're about to spend the rest of their lives ministering to men and women in our military and their families. And that youngest guy, funny-looking little baby there, well, his name's TJ, and he's running our live stream this morning. <laughs> See, they were more afraid of disobeying God than what it might do to their family. And there's, there's just this truth that throughout the history of God's people, there have been moments like there were for Peter and John when the Sanhedrin told them to be quiet, and they said, you decide whether it's right to obey God or obey man, but we can't help talking about what we've seen and heard. You can be paralyzed by fear. But God's going to work through His people. He is going to be sovereign and good and bring His presence and power to bring about His purposes and keep His promises. So God dealt well with the midwives, and people continue to grow. There's this growing tension between Pharaoh, a man who thinks he's sovereign, and God, who actually is. And no matter what he does... He can't shut down God spreading his image over all the earth. 
And the midwives feared God, and he gave them families. There, there are a couple of things that we ought to just stop and hear out loud, I think, that throughout human history, God has used oppression, he's used even the most difficult circumstances to be faithful to his promises and accomplish his purposes. And awful treatment by others has not escaped God's concern and cannot stop his plan to be at work in our lives through redemption that's in Jesus. It does not escape his concern. Jesus who came and lived and died and rose from the dead to take the punishment of our sins to conquer sin and rose from the dead to conquer death will return injustice and he will set all things right. Well, Pharaoh just becomes unhinged at his lack of sovereignty. And so Exodus 1 ends with this awful command. Every son that is born to the Hebrews. He commanded all his people, not the two midwives, but all of his people. Throw them into the Nile, but let the daughters live. Pharaoh's fear grows and grows and grows, and this situation is going to get worse before it gets better. And Israel, in the book of Exodus, desperately needs for God to come with his presence and to show up bringing his power. And over the course of this book, they're going to find out that he is sovereign and he is good. He will send a deliverer to rescue his people. And through many dangers, toils, and snares, they're going to find freedom from their bondage to Pharaoh. And this is a beautiful telling of what God can do in and of itself, but all the more it's a foreshadowing of how God is sending his son Jesus to deliver his people from the serpent king and slavery from sin and death. One of the biggest struggles humanity faces is this reality that the enemies inside of us can destroy us as much or more as the enemies outside of us. And Jesus came to conquer them. Throughout history, God's people have faced difficult circumstances. They've had to decide, are they going to fear the Lord and trust the Lord rather than people, rather than their own ingenuity? It's almost like Israel has to decide, are we going to trust in ourselves with all of our heart and lean on our own understanding and in all of our ways acknowledge our great wisdom so that we can find a path that's straight? Or are we going to trust in the Lord with all of our hearts and not lean on our own understanding and in all of our ways acknowledge Him, put all of our eggs in His basket that He is the one who can make our paths straight? Leland Riken says Israel had only one thing going for them, and that was God Himself. And that's true for us today. It's easy to forget that, but that's the reality. Exodus is going to show one theme and one purpose that Israel is saved passive by God for his glory 
and they're good. There are so many themes at work in the book, but these four words sum up the people of Israel, and they really sum up the life of the church as well. Saved for his glory. God, we thank you for salvation that is in Christ. God, we thank you that you've saved us for your glory. God, I pray for men and women and boys and girls in this room who have not come to the realization that they need the deliverance that's found in the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God, would you open their hearts to believe right in this moment? Would you draw them to yourselves today, to yourself today, God, that they might come to the end of themselves and run to Jesus Christ for life and salvation? God, you're the only one who's worthy of our praise. And so we give it all to you. In Jesus' name, amen.